Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, just go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP1. This week on TWIP, new gear from Fuji announced in advance of CES, CES announcements from Nikon, Canon, and Sony, the rise and fall of the selfie, and an interview with commercial and fine art photographer Bob Coates. It's Wednesday, January 8th, 2014, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP. Frederick is on assignment at CES this week in Las Vegas, so I'm your special guest host, Joseph Lanashki. Joining me today to discuss the topics of the week and more are Valerie Jardin and Don Komarechka. Hello, folks. Hey, hey Joseph. Hey, Don. So, Don, you and I have shared the airways before, but I don't believe I've ever been on a show with Valerie, so I'm going to let her start. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, good to be back. Um, well, lots of exciting news. Uh, for me, the past month, it's just been crazy end of the year for 2013. It's been a busy year and uh, ended up kind of in a, with a bang, as you, I think you say that in English. Um, <laughs> Trey Radcliffe and the team invited me to join, the Arcan- to join the Arcanum as an inception master in the field of street photography. So that just happened like a couple weeks ago. And uh, so that was really exciting. Uh, and that shoot launch... Um, within the next few weeks now. Wow. Um, so that's that's the big news. Um, other than that, um, it's going to be a f- busy photo workshop season for me. And I just added another workshop this past few weeks um, in Chicago. And it's a weekend street photography workshop, which I'm going to co-lead with some someone the TWIP listeners know well. It's Dan Ablin, who is also, um, he's a Chicago native. And uh, so I, I need somebody who knew the city really well to co-lead this workshop. Just I'm doing the one in New York with somebody from New York who is a street photographer, because I think uh, those are big cities to tackle when you don't know them well. And now are you going to wait for him to thaw out or? (laughs) Well, he's not as frozen as I am up here in Minnesota. So (laughs) it's much colder here. (laughs) And I'm sure it's even colder where Don is. So, uh, but it's in May. So it should be really nice and pleasant by then. The lake should be thawed. And uh, so it's May 3rd and 4th with Dan. So that's, that's going to be really fun. I'm excited to, to see, um, and to teach with Dan, and since he knows the the, the city so well, oh, and then awesome. uh, so there are a few spots left for that, and uh, and I have a fun announcement which I will make today, but Frederick will talk about it probably uh, more in depth next week. Um, Frederick will most likely participate in my Paris photo workshop in June, so it's going to be a huge bonus for whoever has already signed up on that workshop and and the few people who will grab the last few spots for that workshop. So it's a week-long photo workshop in Paris, street photography mostly. Oh, so. that sounds fantastic. We'll make sure to get links for the uh, signups for those into the into the blog. To make Thank sure you. See that. Absolutely. Very cool. And the Arcanum sounds really exciting. Trey, actually, I talked to him about joining as an Aperture instructor, and he said, great, great sounds good. I'll sign up, and I probably should get around to doing that. <laughs> Goodness. It sounds yes. very interesting. 
it's um it's exciting and i think it's uh it just the the whole thing is exciting to join at one level or another whether you're at a a, a master level sure. or as a, an apprentice i think it got a lot of people really exciting so excited yeah. so uh, i know there are a lot of, of apprentices waiting for for it to launch so it'll awesome. be fun should be very yeah. cool. Well, thanks, Valerie. Welcome again. So our other guest, of course, is Don Komarechka, and you know him of the Snowflake photography fame. Don, welcome. <laughs> thanks so much, Joseph. Uh, yeah, you know, the Snowflakes, I mean, it's the season for it, and I just, uh, I'm thrilled to have completed uh, my book project, which, uh, you know, as a lot of uh, listeners may have known, that was sort of a whole year-long project uh, with a lot of blood, sweat, and toil put into it, and uh, no shortage of obstacles to get to the end of it all, but uh, it's out, and I've heard nothing but uh, positive comments on that. I think, Valerie, you actually have a copy of it. Yes, and I'm just so, uh, I'm blown away, first of all, by all the work you put into this and then all the things that went wrong with the first print and you were so dedicated and had another print done and shipped new books and wow. Yeah, it, it was a huge process and uh, <laughs> lots of extra books left over too for anybody interested. Uh, How does someone I go about getting one of those? Yeah, I highly oh. recommend it. Thank you, Valerie. How does someone Joseph, go about getting uh, one of those books done? Yeah, you can go to skycrystals.ca and all the information is there. I actually just put up a, a full gallery. If you click on the gallery link on that page too, that's got, I think it's 190 right now uh, images, like pretty high resolution images you can click through and get lost for an hour uh, and uh, sort of enjoy some of the work there if you're curious about it. Wonderful. But, I'll, uh, I'll, never, I'll never look at another slow flake, snowflake the same way again. After <laughs> well, <the> you know, <laughs> with this weather, we've had no shortage of new ones, <laughs> exactly. that's for sure. Um, and so, uh, other interesting stuff, uh, recently joined up with, uh, Skip Cohen and his, uh, Skip Cohen University. And so that's kind of a fun little thing there. We've been, uh, you know, recorded a, uh, podcast and have done some guest posts and some interesting fun stuff. Uh, talking about fisheye photography was my last thing there. And I'll be, uh, I'll be writing more for the digital photography school in the coming months too. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, just got on board with X-Rite as well as a member of their Colorati. So it's sort of a partnership program there. I'm a huge proponent of color management and calibrating everything. And I love printing. Uh, so I'm, I'm really happy about that. And I think that there's some good stuff that's going to come from that too. I'm excited. Um, and, you know, photographically, I've been... Uh, uh, and, and I'll talk about this more in my pick of the week at the end of the show, but I've been exploring the the extremes of macro photography to the point where uh, I'm limited by the physics of light. And it's kind of wow. a fun thing to explore. And there's lots of cool challenges there. So yeah, it's fun stuff. Cool. I'd love to hear more about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, And how about you, Joseph? What's new? Oh, goodness. You know, just shooting away. Actually tried to take some time off of the holidays, which was very nice. Had a, had a fun shoot in here last week in the studio. Actually had a ballerina from New York who was in town visiting family and needed some shots. And all she needed was some headshots and some uh, basic poses of what she's capable of. But we ended up turning into something much more exciting. And I got, uh, of course, we did those. And then I got into uh, baby powder shots. Have you seen these before where you cover a dancer with baby powder and they move and you capture the powder flying off of them? Oh, I don't think fun. I have. That sounds really cool. It though. was really cool. Although there is one small problem with it. I'm never going to get baby powder out of my studio. It's everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, it's very, very cool. So I'm going to put something about that up on my blog. Uh, I think tomorrow and, and well, by the time this is uh, this podcast is online, it should be up on the blog at photojoseph.com. You see some photos from that. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was keeping busy shooting. Very cool. All right. Well, welcome again, everybody. And uh, before we jump into the show, Frederick is going to come on and just give a quick thanks to our sponsor for this episode of TWIP, Squarespace.com. 
This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, just head over to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP1. And you know, a couple things about Squarespace. They've got a new metric app for iPhone and iPad that allows you to check your site stats like page views, unique visitors, and social media follows. And with the blog app, you can make text updates. You can tap and drag images to change the layout and monitor comments on the go. Squarespace is really easy to use, but if you need help, they've got an amazing support team that work 24 hours a day seven days a week. And Squarespace starts at just $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So you can start your free trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Then when you decide to sign up, you can just make sure to use the offer code TWIP1 and they'll knock 10% off of the price. That's TWIP1, the number one, to knock 10% off and also to show your support for This Week in Photo. And we thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace is everything you need to create an exceptional website. All righty. Well, let's get on with the show. So, of course, this is the big week of CES, which means that pretty much everything we have to talk about today is hardware, hardware, or hardware. So what would you guys like to go first? There's uh, The first story that we've got on here is a couple of announcements from Fuji. And they've got a few different things, and this is actually pretty interesting. So the first one that we have is their new Instax printer. Then we have a weather-resistant super zoom camera and two new items to the X-Series lineup. I want to talk about this printer first. This is a pretty cool little portable printer called the Instax, and this is kind of a harken back to the Polaroid days. Have you guys taken a look at this thing? Yeah, I thought that this yeah, was kind of interesting. Fun. Yeah, at first, uh, you know, it's thinking that Fuji is coming out with a, a a portable printer, and thinking, huh? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's not very useful to me, but I, I dug into it, and it's uh, it's a wireless connection to to smartphones, and it takes their uh, their instant. Uh, um, I, I think it's optical film because it's rated an ISO uh, for the, um, uh, the, the the print paper that it runs through, uh, and so. They're small prints. I think they're 2.4 by 1.8 inches, and it costs you about uh, 67 cents. I think I did the the numbers on that uh, per print, and so it's kind of a novelty thing. It's not something that you're going to use very often, especially when the printer itself costs 200 bucks. Um, But uh, well, you know, it's it's one of those things that if you're just you know out with friends and you just you, you happen to have that with you and you could just uh, you, you've taken a group photo and you want to print one off and send it off to everybody uh, you know before you part ways I think there's a market for it um, it's not my cup of tea I, I hope I, I, I actually hope that this sells uh, because I'd like to see more outside the box thinking in this area of photography yeah I have to agree with you I think it does look quite cool and, and Valerie I would think something like this would you use this in street photography would you carry this with you if you're shooting with a camera that has wireless capabilities or with an iFi card shoot a portrait of somebody on the street transfer it to your phone and then print it and hand them a little credit card size print um well that sounds good I just <laughs> I don't print and um, I don't print at all I, I send everything out so that would be a good way to start that, that's true um, and I do, um, actually I shoot Fuji 
mostly for street photography as I shoot the X100S. And I'm also an image logger for Samsung. So Samsung is sending me all this really cool um, high-tech gear, which is not only Wi-Fi, but um, like the Galaxy NX is actually 3G, 4G. So um, that kind of thing would, would be really cool, except that I like to travel super, super light. I, I don't even always carry a bag with me. So that would only be the, the part that uh, wouldn't work. I, I don't like to carry extra gear. I, I have a hard time even bringing a lens cap with. So uh, just extra, a couple extra batteries and and uh, I'm on I'm on the street and, and I, I don't like uh, so I don't think I would bring a printer with. But that's a good that's the good thought. And it would actually be fun to bring on a on, on a workshop just to share with the participants even. Yeah, absolutely. I could see especially if you're in Kind of more remote regions, it could be quite cool to be able to print out a, a small print. And it is a bit small. I mean, credit card size is really little. I kind of do wish that it was a bit bigger, more like a, a standard Polaroid size print was. Uh, I was thinking that something at that size doesn't have a lot of usefulness. But if you look back to the uh, the era of Polaroid, a lot of photojournalists in some very remote regions would almost give that as a, as a thank you to people that they would take a picture of uh, doing street photography or any photojournalism work. You'd take the picture uh, and, and you, you might have your uh, film SLR, uh, but you'll take a Polaroid and just give it to the person as a gesture of goodwill and good faith. Uh, and, and I think that you know, that's something that's been lost. I don't know if it needs to come back. I think the world is progressing forward in many ways. And the, the remote regions of the world that there used to be are getting more and more interconnected. Um, but even still, just for everybody having a good time and wanting to make a memory, uh, this, this puts it in a solid form. And I think that should happen more often. Yeah, very cool. I like it. I, I agree with you. I would like to see this succeed and uh, maybe get a few more options out there. So let's go on to the next one. Valerie, you said that you're shooting with the Fuji X100S, and it looks like Fuji's just come out with a all-black version. Do you wish you had waited for this one? No, 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 not at all. I love mine. I would not... I I don't like the all-black version. I think uh, I like the retro look of the black with silver. So right I would on. stick with mine. But that's the only difference, I think. So... Yeah, they, uh, they knew how to keep a, a what good thing. What about that lens, too, <laughs> that 56-millimeter lens? I think that's a fun little... Um uh, I, I think that that new 56 millimeter lens is a is a fun thing for the pros that are going to these smaller bodies. And uh, Valerie, I want to pick your brain. Would this be something that that you would use? I haven't jumped into this market yet, and so an f 1.2 lens, uh, if the quality lives up to uh, to what the specs are, I think this is something that uh, can entice a lot of people to go with the smaller form factors. Oh, definitely. And um, I well, I like the X100S because it's a fixed lens and you can't change it. It doesn't have you can't change lenses on that one. But I've been playing around with the the small mirrorless cameras uh, that Samsung offers, and I love the NX. Um, 300 and I've been playing with a lot of the lenses that come with it and there are some really great lenses for those mirrorless cameras now so this new addition to the Fuji lineup looks really awesome makes me want to try one of those um, new um, what is it um, EX2 or I can't remember the name exactly but right. I think so the, that would yeah, be so a, a great one to try it does look great. The lens that Don's talking about is this new 56mm f1.2 for the X-Series, and that translates to about an 85mm, so that's a perfect portrait lens. And yeah, for anybody shooting with the X-Series Fujis, uh, yeah. that's kind of the big brother of the Fuji X100 with the interchangeable lenses. That's going to be a pretty sweet addition to the kit for sure. Absolutely. And, then the and last... it doesn't look very... 
it doesn't look very big and heavy either. It looks like a pretty light lens. So that would be good. Because that's the problem sometimes. Like I've been shooting with the um, Samsung NX uh, 300. And it's I love using that camera with like the 30 millimeter pancake lens because it fits that camera. It's the right size for it. But um, I also have the 85 1.4, which is which is a giant lens and so, so heavy. And to me, that defeats the purpose of shooting with a small camera body if I put a huge, heavy lens on it. Yeah, I agree with you. It's funny. I've seen where you can add pretty much any lens from any manufacturer these days to any camera, and you end up with these tiny little bodies and then a big, huge Canon 50mm 1.2 on there. It does kind of tend to defeat the purpose a little bit. But, yeah, this lens does look nice and small. And, and I know what you're saying. I shoot with the OMD cameras and the 45 millimeter 1.8 i believe it is which is a 90 millimeter equivalent on that is so tiny it literally will fit into your pocket and it is just such a fantastic lens and it's very very sharp so the technology is definitely getting better we'll have to see if canon or nikon are ever going to come out with something to compete so the next camera here on the list is a Finepix S1. Probably not too interesting to most of our audience. It's a high-end super zoom that claims the title of the world's first weather-resistant super zoom bridge camera. I think if you have to put that many qualifiers in there to call it the world's first, you're kind of maybe losing the plot a little bit. But it's one of those bridge cameras somewhere between a point-and-shoot and an SLR. Not a changeable lens, but it does have an incredible zoom on it. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, then take a look for that, the FinePix S1. Now, of course, uh, Fuji was not the only one to make announcements at CES. We've also got a bunch of stuff from Nikon, Canon, and Sony. Not a lot of pro gear. So let's just start off with the Nikons. They've got a, a D3300, a new 35mm 1.8 lens that's quite high-end. That looks very nice. Some cool Pix cameras, and then they announced the new D4S, although there's not too much info out about it. Now, do either of you guys shoot Nikon? I, I don't shoot Nikon, but the uh, the Nikon D3300, uh, it, it's a very interesting camera model because uh, it's really kicking up the resolution. Uh, it's a 24 megapixel camera. Uh, sensor inside of a crop sensor body that's about the same pixel density as the d800 and uh, along the same lines they took the uh, the same idea as removing the uh, the anti-aliasing filter from in front of the sensor on the d800 uh, and they've applied that to or the d800e i should say they've applied that to the d3300 and so now there's no anti-aliasing filter to improve the resolution, and I hope that uh, you know software can fix any problems that that might introduce. But this seems to be a growing trend where the resolution is getting uh, so dense on the uh, on the cameras themselves, and uh, and you're getting some pretty interesting stuff as a result. I noticed too that I, yeah, Nikon has released a whole slew of uh, point-and-shoot cameras, and I think Canon too. Um, I noticed that even the the lowest-end camera from Nikon, the L30 or something. Uh, had a 20 megapixel sensor packed into that. And I'm not going to say that means it's good, but it, it does mean that uh, the bar for resolution keeps going up and up and up, and manufacturers have to find creative ways to keep those pixels good pixels instead of just, you know, higher quantity is better. Yeah, I really thought that the resolution wars were over at this point, but a, a D3300, which is basically a consumer, prosumer-grade camera, 24 megapixels. I mean, do most consumers need that, or is that just just going to fill up hard drives, and is it an excuse to buy bigger hard drives? It seems a little bit ridiculous almost, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think the people so. buying these cameras, I think, are competing directly on the specs. If they, if if you walk into a camera store and you don't know anything really, this might be your first digital SLR. Uh, you're going to look at the numbers, and bigger is better, unless a sales associate or somebody tells you otherwise. You know, a lot of the the sales associates might simply go for that as well, and uh, and you'll get a camera with a bigger number, and uh, you know, your initial perception will be that you made the better purchase, and and that might be what Nikon's going after in this case. Uh, you have to wonder. Now, on the other end, we've got this lens, this 35 1.8, and they're definitely uh, bigger is not better. So this 1.8 lens looks fantastic, absolutely sharp, really nice shallow depth of field, even on a wide-angle lens. And apparently, it's a quite a good, uh, quite quiet focuser, making it really good for video. Uh, Valerie, are you shooting video at all? No, I, I'm not. So I... Um and I, I want to, I want to start doing it. It's just that I, I don't have the time, and and I feel like if I want to do it, then I want to do it right, and that's going to take some time. So, uh, right now, it's not on my list of, uh, uh, of things to try. Yeah, fair enough. Well, it does look like a beautiful lens, and I'm not an icon shooter, but if I was, I know I'd be looking at this one. Having that really shallow depth of field, even on a wide-angle lens, if you're shooting landscapes, it seems, well, it is a bit uh, unnecessary, but once you start shooting with it and you realize that you can get that shallow depth of field on a wider scene and still be quite far away from it, it really can be quite interesting. So then there's this uh, Nikon D4S that was announced, and there's not a whole lot told about it. Uh, all the press release said is that it's basically better image quality and better autofocus. So uh, not a whole lot to report there, but if you're interested in that or if you are a Nikon D4 shooter, you may want to take a look at the D4S and see what's new there. So next up, we have a couple it things. It seems kind of silly for Nikon to announce that, though, uh, Joseph. Sorry to, to just dwell on this for another minute. It, it just seemed that Nikon was saying, oh, yes, by the way, we haven't made our last camera ever. Uh, there will be something <laughs> new down the road, but we're not going to give you any details about it whatsoever. Just know that we haven't given up making cameras. And it, it just seemed like a very strange announcement. Yeah, sure, it's going to be better, as you would expect the next generation camera to have you know, uh, better image quality and better autofocus. Uh, but they, they haven't really spelled anything out. So it, it, it made me kind of raise my eyebrow as if they were expecting a big announcement from another manufacturer that may or may not have come. Mm. Uh, and they were just sort of hedging their bets to make sure that they had something on the table as well. Now, I don't know how long the D4 has been out, but I wonder if that's uh, made a few D4 owners uncomfortable because it's uh, you know, not a cheap camera to invest in. Well, let's go on to the next camera. So there's the, the next one up is this Canon PowerShot N100. And I remember about a year ago uh, talking about the first version of this, just the PowerShot N here on the Twip show, and it was quite an interesting little camera. So the N is this little point-and-shoot that was actually a square format, so really going after that Instagram idea. And the new N100 is not, and to be honest, it's just a form factor thing, but I'm kind of disappointed. I liked that the difference there, something that set it apart, made it a little bit uh, different from every other bajillions of point-and-shoots that are on the market. But one of the things they have added to this is a rear-facing camera so that you can uh, do the ultimate selfie, shoot a picture or video of something in front of you while simultaneously shooting yourself behind the camera. It's all very odd, frankly, but it's, you know, it's interesting and, you know, kudos to them for trying something different. That's what the N was all about in the first place. A little bit more expensive, up at $350, but it does still have this really cool hybrid mode where it shoots video before every photo. And what I remember from the N, although I didn't see it in the specs for the N100, although I'm sure it's there, is the N would take all those videos from the day and create a longer form video for you at the end of the day, just kind of your day in summary. Uh, have either of you guys ever played with the the 
PowerShot N, the original one. Valerie, have you touched this thing before? No, I haven't. And I'm actually surprised that they keep coming out with point and shoots. Um, I feel like the point and shoot um, market was kind of dying and we weren't, you know, with the, the smart, the camera phones being so good now. And then the mirrorless, I didn't think there was any room for the for the point and shoot anymore. So, but I haven't played at all with the Canon power shots. Yeah, leave it to the big names to come out with just dozens of point and shoots every year. It's uh, it's it is odd. I have to agree with you because yeah, like you said, the the cell phone market, the smartphones are becoming so so good, and the bigger cameras are becoming so much smaller. It is kind of hard to imagine a, a real space for this. Don, what do you think of this camera? You have any thoughts on it? You know, I, I wonder if this is a uh, a test bed for new technology where uh, Canon and other manufacturers, you know, you, you got to. Uh, work out the, the the new features and the new bells and whistles somewhere, but you don't want to put them into a flagship product where, for some reason, it might uh, it might hurt the performance or it might not be exactly what people expect. And um, so I, I can see Canon using the point and shoot market to test some of these fun new features and do their outside of the box thinking there, where there might be less risk uh, to where they'd be selling more cameras. The price on this thing really turns me off. Three hundred and fifty bucks. I mean, you can buy, uh, it's, you know, it's approaching the entry-level digital SLR, uh, and there's lots of other cameras in this class that cost the same or less that probably have better image quality. Uh, and, and so, yeah, they've got, I think it's an f1.8 lens on there, um, but I'm, I don't know. I, I think that the, the N was a good concept, but a bad execution. The N100 introduces some new features, but I still don't know if it really uh, brings it home. I don't know how many of these they're going to sell. Well, it's an interesting approach. If uh, I like that idea that they're using it as a test bed, although I have to say if a rear-facing camera shows up on the next Canon Pro camera, I think they will have officially jumped the shark. Well, let's take a look at this Vixia camcorder as well from Canon, something else they released, and there's actually four different models of it. Uh, these Vixias are kind of clever. These these little uh, self-contained video cameras with a with a screen on it that you can pop back at yourself. Very small, not a whole lot bigger than your iPhone. And you can, uh, they have Wi-Fi built into them. You can stream to the web just directly from them, do live streaming. And you can even control the device from your iOS or Android device. Um, you can control it from you know locally or from elsewhere across the internet, and you can the the newer models have fisheye lenses. It's actually quite a cool little device. It's one of these things where I I love the device. I think it's very clever. I'm just not exactly sure what I would do with it. Don, what do you think of these? I'm not really sure who it would be for, too. I mean, you've got the people that uh, that they want, a, you know, a GoPro to do some, uh, you know, uh, first-person perspective videos or, uh, you know, something a little bit more dynamic like that. And there's a huge market for it. I think Canon's trying to get some of that with um, at least one of their new Vixia models. It's very small and compact to that end. Uh, I think it has a fisheye lens on that particular one. But I'm looking at uh, at the lineup overall, and there's some new features, but it, it's kind of evolutionary. You know, the Canon has had Vixia camcorders for a few years now, and yeah, they're getting more and more connected. I think that the, the only selling point for this kind of stuff is, you know, if, if you're uh, if you want to do video and you want a huge reach and zoom, uh, then you know your GoPro or your cell phone or even your digital SLR might not be able to get that. Now you sacrifice a lot of quality uh, when you have the I think it's like a 57. 
seven times zoom or something like that. But it's, you know, it, if it's that or nothing for your particular use, then, then I think there might be a, a value in it. But we're getting to the point now where how many devices do you want that have cameras in them? Do you want to have that, uh, you know, the, the PowerShot N and do you want to have this Vixia camcorder? Do you want to have um, a, a GoPro, a cell phone, a digital SLR, uh, you know, a smaller interchangeable lens camera? I don't need this many devices. And so if I'm going to take, you know, my max is two really a good camera and my cell phone and so these particular pieces of equipment i don't know if they've got a place uh, in my camera bag yeah fair enough I, I have to agree with you there having more and more gear is definitely going the wrong direction uh, i do th you know it, it has value for sure and obviously if they've been making it for a few years then people are buying them and like i said in the beginning i do like it i'm just not quite sure how i would use it but i'm sure there's definitely a market for it out there so unfortunately, we had to drop Valerie from the call. She was having too many delays and wasn't hearing us enough to be able to participate in the conversation, which is really a shame because we would have loved to have had her input on this next story that we have, which is titled The Rise and the Fall of the Selfie. So the selfie, as of course you know by now, you can't possibly not know about these things, is the act of taking your own photograph, specifically so you can post it on social media. It's become incredibly popular. In fact, in 2013, it was chosen by Oxford's Dictionary as the word of the year, for better or for worse. And it's made a lot of uh, news recently. So President Obama made headlines participating in a selfie with the Prime Minister of Denmark during the memorial service for Nelson Mandela. Probably not his most crowning achievement in his presidency. Um, an anonymous woman found herself on the cover of the New York Post for taking an ill-timed selfie of herself, obviously, in front of the Brooklyn Bridge while a man was on the bridge attempting to commit suicide, which is just an awful thing to be caught doing no matter how you look at it. And then I think the funniest part of the story, and I'm sure, Don, you're going to love this one, a 19-year-old thief faces 142 felony charges after posting a series of selfies showing off his massive gun collection, money, drugs, and stolen property. Don, what do we say about this? <laughs> I think that um, uh, there have always been, uh, like, since the inception of photography, uh, as more and more people are taking pictures, you'll have more and more good pictures taken. You'll have also more and more bad pictures or stupid pictures, and, and photography is being... Uh, I, I guess it's becoming a, a bigger and bigger part of our social communication. And since the inception of communication, there have been bad conversations. There have been things that you regret saying uh, and, and that there's been bad decisions made. And I think photography is kind of rolling into uh, all the good things and the bad things as well. I don't think that it's anything necessarily wrong with selfies. I just think that you know that is part of photography that is is very personal and it's sort of personal communication. And, and I think that, uh, well, you, you've got the good and the bad, and, and this is definitely showing those ill-timed and ill-conceived moments uh, captured for all to see and for all time. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, if we say something stupid or idiotic that those words fade away and hopefully people forget them, unfortunately, with a photograph, it's pretty much forever, especially once it's on the social media and the aliens will be looking at these pictures that we've been taking of ourselves a million years from now wondering what was wrong with our species. So what, what do you think about this then, uh, Joseph? If, if you were looking at, uh, at this, this whole selfie craze, let, let's say if we fast forward 10 years from now and we look back to today and this craze that we have, do you think that this is something that's going to continue? Do you think that uh, photography is going to become more and more on a personal level? Or are we going to move on from that and this craze is just going to die off and we're going to be on to whatever the next fad is? Well, I have to hope that 
that taking a picture of yourself just for the sake of taking a picture of yourself is going to go away. There are Instagram feeds that you can find uh, without too much effort that are just repeated picture after picture of the same person, of themselves, what they're wearing today, where they are, what type of uh, coffee they're drinking. And it really is just incredibly boring. I mean, it's not only narcissistic, it's just boring to see. So hopefully it will fade away. Um, you know, the cameras that are coming out with self-facing cameras aren't helping in the matter, but it's a trend. And, and obviously the people who are making money, these things are going to jump on it. Uh, you know, I don't want to be a total downer about it, but I've seen enough of them now to satisfy me for the rest of my life. And I <laughs> kind of hope we don't have to witness too many more of these. I, I really hope that it does continue, though. There, there's one thing about this that I, I don't know. I, I have some weird desire to see is that if people that are really into taking selfies and you know who you are, um, <laughs> probably not the majority of uh, of our listenership, but if uh, it, it would be so interesting to see, uh, you know, if you're posting to a continuous service like Instagram or uh, or, or what have you, to, to go over time and let, let's say this trend does continue for 10 years uh, or longer, you could pull up the pictures of people that are taking self-portraits of themselves and put them into a little video, uh, almost like a time lapse of them aging. I think that would be the coolest thing to see all of these people who are so narcissistic slowly get older and uglier as time goes on, but they're still taking pictures of themselves. Uh, that's something that would just make me smile. Uh, I, I want that, and I'm willing to put up with all the selfies to get there. <laughs> now, you know, that has been done before, and now that you say that, it makes me wonder if that's the, the original selfie. It was people doing that, these self-portraits every day to create those videos, and I think there was even an app for that. I remember quite a while ago that uh, you, you pulled up the picture that you shot yesterday so you could align yourself very similarly, get your eyes, nose, mouth in the same spot and take another picture, and it would remind you every day at the same time to take that photo. And it was it was neat, and it was one of these things. There were a dozen YouTube videos. I guess it was a bit of a meme for a little while. And, yeah, that, that was kind of cool. Uh, but when you're flipping through the Instagram feed and it's just constant picture of the same person, I just, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm over it for one. So hopefully the 2014 word of the year will be something a little bit, uh, little bit more long-lasting. Well, let's, let's move so. on to the listener Q&A. So we, uh, this is the segment where we answer a question that's been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. And we've got a question here from Damien Keffin from the Google Plus TWIP community. And his question is one that's been asked before, but uh, we're going to ask it again. And that is, what are the pros and cons of DNG over CR2? And, of course, CR2 is the Canon native RAW file format, but the, you could replace CR2 with NEF or with any other native RAW format. So Don, do you convert to DNG or do you just leave them in their original raw format? I, I had experimented with this originally. You know, I, who knows what this does? You know, you always want to you know, try all the bells and whistles and press all the buttons in, in new software. And, uh, and at the time that Lightroom was just being rolled out, there was an automatic DNG conversion when you bring it in. And, and there still is. Um, and so it, there, there are two or three differences that, uh, that you can consider. Um, one of them is that uh, if for some reason, uh, th th this might be the biggest thing, if you buy a brand new camera, like just released yesterday, you go out, you know, take it out of the box, take some pictures, but you're still using last year's version of Photoshop and it hasn't been updated and maybe you don't have the latest and greatest uh, and the same thing is true for Lightroom, um, your software will not understand the new files. Uh, it, it has no codec. It, it can't understand it. It can't translate it. Uh, but it could translate a DNG file because that's a universal standard. And Adobe actually makes a 
a, a piece of software that's free called the DNG converter. Uh, so you can do this on your own and you can wrap the raw file in this DNG uh, information wrapper that basically tells any program, any universal program, there's a lot of, uh, of software out there that might not be tailored specifically to raw files, but can understand DNG files, uh, and especially older software that, that would be able to read your files. Now, it, I don't see that as being a big issue for me. Uh, I mean, I'm always using the latest software. There's a few other things that in some strange cases might be valuable to you. Uh, a DNG file will retain all of the, the settings. So like if you're, um, uh, editing a uh, a CR2 file in Camera Raw, and it will create a sidecar file with basically it's a, it's a recipe card. It's a .xmp file that has all the settings that you adjust in Camera Raw, and uh, and so if you want to load that up in somebody else's version of Camera Raw, you have to take both the raw file and this XMP sidecar file along with you for those same settings to be presented in Camera Raw. That's rolled into a DNG. So a DNG file will take all of those settings along with it wherever you move it. Uh, and so, you know, th th there might be a benefit there. The con, um, if, uh, if th there's a big one, it's time. When you're importing a bunch of pictures uh, and you have it selected to automatically convert to DNG, your import might take twice as long as it did before. Um, the file size is roughly the same. There is an option to include the original raw file uh, in the DNG uh, if, if you want to extract that later, and that makes even bigger files. Uh, but for me, I don't know. Th there's, no, there's no benefit to really justify making a, a conversion to DNG. H how about yourself, Joseph? Have you played around with... Uh, with DNG files to any extent? Just a little bit. And I'm actually, it's quite curious. You said that one of the advantages is that it's a universal and that you can convert f uh, files that may not be supported yet in the version of software that you're using. I would found, because I've had some, and some DNG files uh, specifically from Leica that were not supported in Aperture, yet Aperture does support the DNG file format. So That's weird. There must be some differences within there. I, I'm certainly no DNG expert, but... Uh, I know that when it comes to, uh, you know, as an Aperture user, when it comes to the DNG file, you don't have as much control over the raw conversion. Obviously, being in Adobe format, that's kind of, you know, I would imagine on their space, you got a lot more. But since the whole idea, my understanding from the beginning of the DNG, I mean, it's supposed to stand for digital negative. The idea was that it's a universal format. So it does seem odd that somewhere along the way, there'd be uh, there'd be copies or, or versions of the file that you couldn't quite control. So... I'm not they totally do have sure. different versions of uh, the DNG format. I mean, it keeps evolving as well, just, sure. just like uh, any standard does. And I, I think, what, what are they up to now? DNG 1.3 or, or some such. Um, and they'll add extra features so that, uh, you know, for people doing medium format work, there's some weird uh, non-central color casts that can be removed through DNG files. And, um, and uh, all, all the new advancements in the new versions of Lightroom, like uh, perspective correction and some of the new uh, tools to remove chromatic aberration. I, like if you were to, to create a DNG file that has all of those settings in it, and then use it in uh, a piece of software that is not optimized or can't understand those particular features. It might not read the file properly. So it could be just a, a miscommunication even within an open standard. Sure. Um, but, you know, without uh, having a technical engineer on the line to, <laughs> uh, to dissect it, I think we'll just have to shrug our shoulders on that one. Yeah, it would seem that if that's the case, then it almost defeats the purpose to some degree. If you have to have the latest of everything, then, well, you have the latest of everything, you may as well read the original raw file. 
I don't know. I've always felt like I never quite got the advantage of it. And so to answer your question, Damien, I mean, other than the simple, we really don't see an advantage to it. Obviously, do a little bit more research, but unless you really need to, I would say there's no point in doing it. As Don said, it's going to increase your file size, uh, if, especially if you want to keep that original one embedded in there, and it is definitely going to increase your workflow time. So I would say skip it unless you have a really, really good reason for it. All right, let's jump on to our pick of the week segment. So unfortunately, since we dropped Valerie, um, she's not able to talk about it herself. However, we do have a note here for her. So uh, Don, go ahead, go ahead with your pick of the week first, and then I will go with Valerie's and then bring my own in. Sure. Uh, mine is a little bit niche, and it won't necessarily apply to everybody, um, but it'll apply to more than you might think. Um, I, I play around with some pretty extreme macro photography, and, and I've been looking for a way to get even closer uh, to, to sort of push the limits. Um, uh, to, to put this in perspective, uh, the gear that I, I had prior to this pick uh, would get me about six to one life size, uh, which means it's about six times closer than the strongest magnification a macro lens could normally create. So you're really getting in on tiny things. Now that's um, six times closer when you're looking at the file how? When you're looking at the file one to one on your screen, you're six times closer? Yeah, well, so if you could imagine, um, uh, if you photograph a ruler, and uh, if, if so, uh, if I photograph a ruler and it's um, 36 millimeters uh, across, and, and of course I'm metric, um, then my camera sensor is also 36 millimeters across. And I know that I have an accurate representation of what I'm photographing is appearing on the sensor in exactly uh, the same size. Uh, and so that's sort of the metric that's used to determine magnification. And, uh, and that's usually as close as a macro lens will get you. And that's uh, one to one. That, that, that's one to one. Uh, now, uh, I've got a special lens that Canon uses. The, uh, it's called the MPE 65 millimeter macro lens, and that gets up to about 5 to 1. And I can put extension tubes on that and get to about 6 to 1. But there's this extra little piece I found uh, <laughs> that I think is pretty cool. And it's not intended for this use. Uh, Canon makes, it's called the Canon Life Size Converter EF. And it's designed for the, uh, the, the Canon makes a lens that almost nobody uh, buys. It's the 50 millimeter F2.8 macro lens. It's not a true macro lens and it needs this life-size converter to make it that way. But the fun thing is that converter will fit on any lens. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what magic optics are in there, but I think it's a, a mix of like a teleconverter and an extension tube of some kind. But the point is if I can add that to my optical formula, I double my magnification. And so I go from 6 to 1 to 12 to 1 life size. Um, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, we're getting into like a, an extreme world here. The physics of light breaks down at this point. And there, there's a, it's very difficult to, uh, to avoid diffraction uh, where everything kind of gets soft even though I'm shooting wide open. There's formulas to calculate it, but I'll just give you the results. If I'm shooting at f2.8, the effective aperture at that magnification is f180. And so uh, you need a lot of light and uh, things you, you lose acceptable sharpness for sure, but it, it, it exposes you to an entirely new world. Uh, and so macro photography is a lot of fun. If you're looking for a way to get closer and you shoot Canon, take a look at the life-size converter. Your results may vary. I'm, I'm using it outside of its designed usage, but it will attach to any lens, so it might be worth experimenting with and, uh, and seeing what it can do for you in your scenario. And uh, it, it's quite a bit of fun. And how much is that life size converter? 
Uh, you know what? I, I can't remember the price off the top of my head. I think that B&H has it right now on for just under 300 uh, And so that's probably about the standard price. An item like this doesn't usually go on sale. So, so okay, let me ask you then. Would you be better off if someone is, if some of our listeners are interested in macro photography, they want to play with it, but they're not really ready to jump into the full cost of a macro setup. Is this a good way to try it out, being that it's only $300, or for a little bit more, can you get a really, really good macro lens that would probably be a better purchase? I would say get, like, if you don't already have a macro lens and you want to experiment with it, by all means, get yourself a macro lens. You'll have better optics and things will work a little bit better. However, if you've got a macro lens and, you know, you get bit by the bug with this stuff because as soon as you start to get in close, you want to get in closer. And and if you're in that position right now, um, I used to recommend, you know, getting extension tubes or close-up filters or something to get you closer. But this makes a pretty good alternative. Again, I haven't tested it with all macro lenses and all kinds of equipment, so, uh, you know, uh, caveat mTOR, but uh, it, it's working magic uh, for me. Like I, I can take a picture and from one edge of the frame to the other uh, encompasses three millimeters in real space. So uh, it's it's pretty insane uh, the, the scale at which I can photograph things. And I've been using it for snowflakes right now, but I'm so tempted to just, you know, dig through the kitchen and grab, you know, some grains of salt and just, you know, take pictures and, and just explore. Uh, it's a lot of, it, like I said, it's a lot of fun. Macro photography is is uh, part photography, but part just exploration. Uh, and that, that's one of the things that really keeps me motivated and inspired. And, and this lets me do it. I love it. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Don's next book is going to be about salt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure it would be stunningly beautiful. Salt crystals are quite interesting. Uh, you know, it could be, although I don't know if I could commit myself to that. I, I think uh, I, I think that one crystal book is uh, just about all I've got in me. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, let's jump on to Valerie's pick again. Sorry, folks, she had to drop off. However, I've got her pick of the week, and her pick is a new photo magazine that launched in December. It's called Absolute Photo for iPad only at this point, but that will change eventually, and that is by Bright Publishing in the U.K., and Valerie is very proud to have her own monthly column in that. So again, it's called Absolute Photo, and we'll make sure that there is a link to that in the show notes for you all. And then, and I checked. I, I want to jump in there, but before yeah. you continue, Joseph, and I just want to say that I've taken a look at uh, at some of the stuff, some of the layouts and design, and and this magazine looks really cool. Uh, and so I I I just want to second uh, Valerie's pick and say check it out if you're interested in uh, you know photographic inspiration and learning a little bit more, and you like to read stuff on your iPad. Uh, I I would recommend that too. Right on. Well, looking at photos on an iPad is a fantastic experience. It just looks so good on that screen. So. Um, looking at a photo magazine, I'm sure will be equally fabulous. So, all right on. Well, thanks for that uh, that endorsement there. All right. So, real quick, my pick of the week here is the Manfrotto Super Boom. Now, this is not something that's cheap, and it's not something that you're going to put in your home. But if you have a big studio, and you have a desire to get lights up high, and especially if you want to have lights overhead, directly overhead, pointing down. It's probably the well, one of the only and certainly the easiest way to do it. So basically what the super boom is, is imagine a, a big tripod or a big light stand with wheels on it for one, and the wheels make it super easy to move around, and then a really long arm that you can tilt and telescope. And on the end of that arm, on your end of it, you have a hand crank so you can tilt the light up and down and side to side so you can get it over your model or subject and then rotate the light into position perfectly so it's a really fantastic piece for studio photography if you're 
doing that kind of thing, it just gives you a whole new world of options. Normally, your lights can't be straight above because, of course, the light stand itself would get in the way. So this is a tool that will allow you to do that. So and so you, you've used one, and uh, and it, it's it's part of your workflow then? It is. I actually just got one. I used it on that ballerina shoot that I was talking about at the top of the show, and it's a fabulous piece of gear. That's awesome. Uh, I, I don't do studio work, but when I see these setups, uh, I always love to see a picture, like you're mentioning the ballerina shot or, or, or some other similar very well-lit and composed image. I'm almost more interested with the image made five feet back and you can see all the gear around and it's just it's so fascinating for me to see you know stuff like this manfrotto super boom put to use it is quite cool yeah i did take some pictures not many because i was uh, i didn't have an assistant with me unfortunately so the behind the scenes were me shooting them myself but uh it was quite it's quite a piece of equipment it's very cool and when i first got it it was you know the the box came from germany and it was came by dhl and it was a tube that i don't know it's about 10 or maybe 12 feet long the truck driver had no idea what to do with it and it weighed a ton <laughs> but I put that thing together and man it is one very very cool piece of equipment awesome all right folks well that brings us to the end of another episode of twip so stay tuned to the end of the episode for an interview with a commercial and fine art photographer bob coates you can learn more about bob by visiting his website at bcphotography.com so let's wrap things up here don where can the audience find you I'm most active on Google Plus, so uh, you know follow the links and find me there. Uh, but if you want to see my work, uh, doncom.ca is the place to uh, to get a hold of that, and all the links to uh, where I am online and the book project uh, are going to be there too. So check that out and uh, and give me some feedback. I've just been doing some website redesign stuff, so I appreciate any input that you've got. Awesome. And for Valerie, you can check out her work on her website at ValerieYardinePhotography.com. So that's Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E. Yardine is spelled J-A-R-D-I-N. And photography, well, you can probably figure that one out. Of course, she's on Twitter and Google Plus as well, but head over to her website and you'll find the links to all of that. For me, you can find me at PhotoJoseph.com on the Twitters at PhotoJoseph on Facebook as well. And also, of course, at ApertureExpert.com, which, by the way, like yours, Don, has undergone a complete and total re revamp, total rewrite on the site, rebuilt from the ground up, and it is pretty cool, I think. So I'd love to hear your guys' feedback about that as well. Head on over to ApertureExpert.com and tell me what you think. So be sure to also visit another newly revamped website, and that is ThisWeekInPhoto.com. It seems like the beginning of 2014 was the year for new websites. So ThisWeekInPhoto.com, you can check it out. It's all new. And, of course, if you want to touch base with Frederick Van Johnson, you can find him at FrederickVan.com. And with that, it's time to take the lens cap off. Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. I'm sitting here with Mr. Bob Codes. He is a Sedona, Arizona-based uh, commercial and fine art photographer, 
And uh, you, you got to check out his work to believe it. He's just, you know, he's one of those people that just makes you sick because he just knows. <laughs> he just, you know, get Amy's you know, camera. That's, that's, one, that's one of the nicest things you could have said, Frederick, <laughs> that I make you sick. Oh, just uh, it makes me sick because I look at your work. I'm like, oh, man, this guy is just so, you know, you, you, you know your way around the camera 110%. You know your way around composition, landscape, fine art, all that stuff. And it seems so effortless, which is where the sickness comes from. Just, you just art just flows out of Bob Coates. So, do you know? Do you know what's funny? What, you know, when you talk about that and you compare yourself to other people or what you're doing, the problem that we have with that as photographers and as as people in general is we compare our everyday work to somebody else's fine art reel. Ah, uh, if you th- if you think of it in movie terms, okay, here's the rough cut. Yeah, and you're looking you're looking at the finished stuff. Right. Yeah, that's, that's so true. That is so true. Yeah. Yeah, so, cause, uh, because yeah, you you compare the stuff that you do all the time to your very best foot forward, right? So correct. So don't you know? Don't 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 hold up th- so that high because I do the same thing with other photographers. I'm like, man, that guy really makes me crazy. Yeah. Because yeah. it looks like it's easy, but it's not. We all work really hard at our jobs. I love it. Well, let's let's let's, let's jump into it a little bit and get some history of Bob Coates and how you got into this stuff. Where where did it all begin? Are you you've been shooting for you know since the since you. You know, a lot of people say, yeah, I've been shooting since I was five years old. Are you one of those guys? Nope, nope, nope. Um, I borrowed my older brother's 35 millimeter camera when I was uh, 12 years old and I cross threaded the film and didn't pick up another camera really until I was about 28. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, when I went on vacation with, uh, I borrowed a friend's camera and went down to the Virgin Islands with my now wife at my, that time, my girlfriend. And we made uh, I made some pictures while I was there and I used to do art, but could never get what was in my head out onto the paper. So I kind of blew off art. I used to tear up, you know, everybody. Go, oh, that's so beautiful. And I'd be like ripping it up going, no, it's not what I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, you're that artist. Yeah. <laughs> the apparently artists ripping up perfectly good artworks. <laughs> well, somebody thought it was, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what anyway, was it about the, that? What was it about that particular trip that that made you say, "Oh, okay, I, I kind of want to do this." Well, we I, I made some images and I had good composition because of my art, you know, study and background. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had no, I had a few lucky instances of light, you know, where it would be like, "Oh man, that's a really cool photo." And my wife saw the composition and what was going on. And at, again, at the time, she was my girlfriend, but she turned around, and she said. I think you've got a, you know, a, a talent for this. Would you mind if I bought you a camera and some lenses? Mm. Well, what was the answer? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, I don't think great. so. I, yeah. G- yeah, give me something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, she's been, she's been my greatest supporter since she, she recognized the talent that I've been able to nurture from the very beginning. I, I, I really didn't think I was you know, had that much going on, but I enjoyed playing with it. And I picked up the camera and put it down for about 13 years. I had a dark room, um, you know, had some little one man eight by 10 shows at the local you know gallery in Bellhaven, North Carolina, um, did a little stringing for AP, uh, moved to the Virgin Islands on board a boat after uh, leaving a radio career. And we were teaching windsurfing up in Tortola, uh, living aboard a boat, and my wife said, uh, "You know, you've got all this darkroom gear and all this camera stuff, and it's all just rusting in the corner. If you don't use it, I'm going to throw it away." Mm. And so again, she's always been the one to kind of, you know, push me to, you know, get things going. Yeah, I heard. I heard one thing in there 
Um, well, it was all interesting. You sound like the world's most interesting man. <laughs> but, I, yeah. I've been very, very, very fortunate. I am, I am one of the luckiest men in the world. There's no doubt about that. Uh, one, one thing I heard in there was a former radio career, and I, I, I could have guessed it from hearing your voice. You have, you know, control over your voice in, in your projecting. And so how, how did right. what and happened And you're right. There? It's, it is the control. It's not the uh, it's not the and it's not the voice that you have. It's what you do with it. It's learning to speak from the diaphragm. And it's, you know, then uh, the reason I got into radio was because I love to entertain people, but I didn't want them to be able to, like, throw tomatoes. And, you know, so you had your own safe little box to work in. Yeah. Yeah. And then the very the very first job I got um, when I came back to the States uh, moving, you know, you move around in radio a lot. And the very first job that I had um, the. The second weekend I was there, they said, oh, by the way, Bob, you're doing the uh, a live remote from the air show. I said, what? Mm. There's going to be five, yeah, 5,000 people. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> so that's when I started getting over being shy. Oh, yeah. Really? So did, how did that go over? Was it uh, It went really well. Cool. went really well. I, again, I've been very, very fortunate that whatever I go for, I've been able to make it fairly successful. The problem that I run into is at some point um, I get bored. Mm-hmm. And I never got bored with radio, but I got bored with having to move around the country to try and make more money. Right, right. And so we we finally went. You know, there's too much blue sky and radio, if you will. I bet you. I bet. So I, I know you also did a stint as a restaurateur. You were you in the uh, restaurant when business. We, when we finished up in Tortola, we taught windsurfing for about four years with my wife running the shop. Um, and then when we moved back to St. Thomas, I ran restaurants for about three years. I used to turn rest three four years maybe five, uh, I turned restaurants around. And in the, in the past, before that, I had waited tables and tended bar and things like that. Yeah. But I would take restaurants that were, oh, doing 20 dinners a night and take them up to 120 dinners a night. And then once all the things were in place, again, it'd be like you're babysitting. And that would I would start to get bored and say, okay, let's train up somebody. I'm leaving. Yeah, yeah. Um, nice. So so I'm seeing a trend here of you you get bored, but you haven't gotten bored with photography. Is that because it just it's a continually changing industry and the creative outlet? It is exactly that. I don't I think that photography is something that I will never be able to master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's just it's just constantly changing. It's going forward. It's uh, whenever I start to think that I'm getting good, I just have to, you know, poke around and and see people that really are. Right. Yes, yeah. and then there's that next next trend to try and go. And one of the nice things about photography is there's so many different ways to make money in this business. Mm-hmm. You know, I did weddings. You know, I've, I've I still do some family portraits. Um, I obviously do commercial photography, and and fine art is is my real love because I'm starting to get some of those things that are in my head out onto paper. Yeah. So that's that's really that's really kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, what about let's let's talk a little bit about, about about the fine art piece of it. So, first def, define fine art. What is fine art, and what is it? What does fine art mean compared to just regular art? For every everybody has their own thing. Okay, fine art is is a way for me to distinguish the artwork that I want people to hang on the walls to decorate hotels and restaurants and fine homes. That's the that's what I'm considering fine art. And I've been pushing my photography uh, and, and fine art photography comes in many different shapes and forms. It can be a super realistic thing or in the case of what I'm doing now is using a lot of multiple textures, multiple 
I'm using photography and Photoshop and multiple images to create images that look like paintings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. And it's weird because you say fine art. Well, people who do paintings sometimes work really, really, really hard to make things look super realistic, just like a photograph. So, so, you know, when, go ahead yeah. and figure which which what's fine art. Is it the thing that looks like super realistic or is it something that looks like a painting? Yeah. So, so. When you, when, so what's, let's just dive into your process a little bit for creating these. If you're creating one of these these images that sort of straddles the line between painting and and photograph. Take me through your process. Do you you're in, you're in beautiful Sedona, Arizona. So there's vistas right outside your door. You could go photograph. So is it you know what? I'm going to go take a picture of that rock formation. I'm going to make some art from it. When you make that decision, what happens? Do you schedule a time to go out there and then you you import the images? How, what's the flow? Um, it always starts with a good capture of of a of a of a of a good image. Mm -hmm. I mean. A lot of people say, you know, we, we've all been through that thing where we took a really bad image and turned it to sepia tone, added some noise and said, ah, well, voila, art, you know, you know, just just to cover your butt. I mean, that's that's always something. And I guess maybe that's where it started, because I did make a few mistakes along the way. Matter of fact, there was there was a thing that, you know, I've, I've learned so much from the mistakes I made. I think I'm going to go out and make some more. Mm, you know, there you go. Maybe that's my look. <laughs> it I will be my look. My eventually. Look. <laughs> Mess up the exposure. But yeah. but we all learn by experimenting when you play, when you get in there. And, and I, I spend a lot of time playing with my images. I will take whatever subject it may happen to be. Uh, I will take different layers, put them over and run through some blend modes just for starters. And And, and after a while, you start to understand how the different textures will work with what you're, what, how they kind of interplay. It's all mathematics. And luckily, somebody else has done the math. So I can just push a button and see what the math looks like, yeah. if you want to think of it that way. Blend modes mean um, if this layer is on top of that layer, and this one is this much percent of gray and this much of a tone and this much thing, if it goes with the other one underneath, then it will do that. And after a while, you start to say, okay, well, if I take this little pile of leaves that I photographed at one time and stick it over top of there and put it into a soft light blend mode, it's going to react a certain way. And, oh, I don't like all of it, so let's mask out some of it. Mm -hmm. So there's, it's actually, you know, when people say, oh, well, you're just throwing some textures over top. No. The, the work that I'm doing, I, I think, and because I've been working on it for the last four years, I've been trying to build the style, as you will. Um, been working really hard at adding a lot of depth and dimension. Mm -hmm. You can get a similar look just by taking one texture and throwing it on top of a picture and say, oh, okay, I did just did what Bob did. Mm -hmm. But when you sit those photographs or those images together, you'll go, whoa, this one's got a lot going on. And the other one is, you know, it did help it. And maybe it was, it was cool. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that where, you know, people think that they're getting close. Now, in in but, in your work, are you know, when you put on your your artist hat and you're out there and you're creating or you're capturing the raw materials, you're doing the compositing, blending, masking, all this stuff. Do you have a sort of a a what's a, what's a good word for it? A theme in your head or a message that that particular print is trying to convey to the viewer, or is it you know I'm making something that looks awesome? It'll look great on the wall, or is there underlying messages in your work? Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're underlying messages. There may be, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. sometimes I subconscious, sometimes, 
yeah, you know, you, you don't know for sure. Sometimes I sneak some things in, you know, I put in like some Japanese characters, but fade them in really soft and it'll be the word of whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and you, you may not even, you wouldn't even see it for six months until you're like, oh, there it is. Yeah. So one of the things that I try and do is the, what's important to me is that people enjoy the art and that they don't get tired of looking at it. So that it's it's almost alive. So if and I've been studying, I've been standing in front of a lot of paintings in museums, and will spend anywhere from my my wife hates going to museums with me because I'll spend anywhere from five minutes to um, as at one time I spent forty five minutes in front of a Monet, oh, and wow. not all at once. I did a half hour and then I did another fifteen minutes okay. after lunch. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I went back to it. That's how that's how impressed I was by that's it. Cool. And and what I've been doing is studying the painterly information of how how they mix colors how one color next to another color does something how the different paint strokes work how it resolves different if you're three or four inches away from it if you're a foot away if you're five feet away if you're 10 feet away if you're 15 feet away if the light is brighter or softer or moves around when you can look at an image and if you change the light on it and it looks totally different that's what i'm trying to go for so that as people live with the art on the wall you know, it's it's something that every you know they keep going past and they keep looking at it and going. It's not just something that's sitting there like a piece of furniture. It's something that's alive. It's something that's, yeah, you can. That's get, my goal. You keep getting something out of it over time, rather than just oh yeah, pretty picture, and then move on. Exactly. Yeah. And on one of these, on one of your pieces, I know I'm sure it varies um, the the effort and the time that you put into them, depending on what what the what the work is. But generally speaking, on the post-production side of things, what are we looking at time-wise from, from your side? How long does it take to get one of these things created? Um, anywhere from an hour to 10, sometimes 20. Oh, wow. it, it, really, it really depends. Okay. Um, there's, it depends on what my raw materials are to start with, where we're going with it. Um, I can now take, you know, take commissions. So if somebody says, Bob, I have this rusty nail. And I would like you to turn that rusty nail into a piece of art. And in that, I want it to um, come forward into the room. I want it to jump off the wall and I want warm tones of golds and browns. And I want lots of texture. Okay, so that once I have, have talked to the customer enough to get some information from them about, well, what is your favorite color? What is your decor? What do you want it to be? Do you want it to be soft and, and gentle and just kind of whispering from the wall? Or do you want it to shout? Yeah. So once you get that information, then that, that gives you going. And the weird part is this artwork is now working its way into my commercial work. You know, so this whole technique thing, I, I work for a, a restaurant called Soundbites Grill here in Sedona and they do live music mm -hmm. and they have what they call as the wall of fame. So I take live images while they're performing and then I take them into, you know, into the room, you know, into the computer and go play. And I create a totally different look. It's getting hard because there's now over 50 pieces up on the wall. But I, each one is totally different. They have a different color. They have a different feel. They have a, a different texture. And my, my goal is to make sure that as we continue this process that it continually changes. And I'm not making the people not look good but i just want them not to look exactly the same as the as the guy as the picture next to them on the wall it's got to be a challenge over time right i mean like you're saying with that many <clears throat> okay the next one can't look like number one right you gotta right. which will keep you pushing forward as an artist which keeps you from getting bored right 
you got you you exactly <laughs> exactly the cool the cool part about it is um, i'm learning uh, each time i learn some new techniques like i found that if you cut somebody out to layer them to get a drop shadow behind them in the image that adds a certain amount of depth yeah and i was doing that for a little while and then i went oh wait a minute you know, we don't have any backlights on the stage, so we have no rim lights, we have no separation light. So, oh, once they're cut out, now I can take that drop shadow layer off and add an inner glow layer around the person and then make that on its own layer, use a mask to make sure it only goes where you want it. And now I've got the separation light coming in, so I'm adding even more depth and dimension to to their work. Sometimes I'll superimpose their images in the background. Um, in the one I'm working on right now, I've, I ended up taking a photograph of the whole band together. And then I've individually taken them from their playing performances and scooted them around in there and, and kind of, you know, made it all work. That's so cool. That's cool. You, you, Bob, you sound like you have a really deep understanding of Photoshop. Um, and, you know, you're going into blend modes and compositing and layer styles and, and all this stuff beyond just, you know, the normal quote unquote normal photographer so how did how did you learn this stuff is it self-taught is it you know, did you go through any formal training how did you get your skills um mostly self-taught when i moved from the virgin islands here to sedona uh, i knew that there was going to be some downtime and i just said in my what i'm going to do while i'm building up my clientele is i'm going to learn photoshop so I just, you know, dug in deep and uh, used companies like uh, Software Cinema, who produce, uh, you know, DVDs, the Internet, uh, a lot of books, a lot of magazines, a member of NAP. NAP is a great organization as far as, I mean, that's the best hundred bucks you'll ever spend if you really want to learn Photoshop. Absolutely. That's the um, National got, Association of Photoshop Professionals, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And they they have just some absolutely fabulous stuff for you. I mean, they have, you know, deep tutorials. Uh, light tutorials and sometimes you just go fishing because the one thing that they don't have is a good system for finding exactly what you want it's not keyworded well uh, i mean you put in your that you're looking to do x and a b c d e f g h i j k l q r p 2 <laughs> will be there before you finally find the one that get, or you have to change your total search terms and you go well why did it come up under that yeah yeah that's i i want to talk to them about that yeah. but but other other than that, it's a it's a great resource. And if you have a, a personal problem with something that you just can't figure out, and you called your you know you called your friends, your buddies, everybody's like, well, I don't know, I have no idea. They have a help desk where you can send in a question, and within twenty four hours, somebody will personally answer your 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 question. That's cool. So so anyway, uh, Photoshop is has just been a really powerful tool for me to be able to you know execute my vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it is the necessary tool of our particular art medium. And uh, I guess the better you are in it, the better your, your work can become. Cause you know, basically I'm listening to you describe your, your artwork. And if you didn't have that command of Photoshop, it would limit your creativity, right? Cause you would only have Absolutely. a small bucket of things that you could do now that you understand how that app works and the, the possibilities in it. It affects the way that you're thinking, especially even when you're capturing the images, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is there is so much in there. I mean, photo the people at, at, at Adobe have no idea what that thing can do. Yeah. I mean, think of it as as we go along, because it's all mathematics, 
there's like eight different departments or whatever sets of engineers and they're they're tasked with doing x and another one is tasked with make this happen if that happens blah 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 well a photographer gets in there and and grabs one and says oh look what i did and i see what they did and then i go wow if you did that then if i took this and did that and added this technique and put this over here all of a sudden it's it's like the, the permutations of the mathematics are just so incredible yeah. that we still don't have any idea what what's what we're capable of. I mean, look at some of the you know the compositing and the work that's that's popping in out there, and you know what people are able to do and create from scratch, let it's alone crazy. you know from photos. I know it's crazy. I mean, I mean, you you look at the whole universe and it's basically just math out there. Right? So everything is math and, and orbits and all this stuff, and you, like translated, you look at Photoshop, and you're right. There's probably there's probably stuff going on under the engine in Photoshop that folks generally have no idea what's going on in there. You know, it's just all this crazy mathematical goodness that happens. And, you know, you put this in on this side, that comes out on that side, and then this subroutine takes it, does its magic to it, and then it goes down the chain, you know. I, I want to address one thought there. Yeah. Um, and and I've, I've had this happen on a regular basis. People say, well that's not really photography anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm not worried about that. I'm creating art. My art is photographically based. All my stuff comes from different photographs. And the other thing was when, when people start out, especially, and I, I was one of these, I was very guilty of this, that putting a filter in front of a camera was cheating. I remember that. You know, if you, if you, if you covered it with your lens and, and what people don't understand is that the camera oftentimes cannot and, and does not see the way our eye sees. Mm -hmm. We have infinitesimal changes in our pupils that if, we, if I look down to this dark area in my studio, my pupil immediately opens up and I can see the detail there. And if I look up at the light that's shining down on me, my pupils close down immediately and I can still see the detail in the umbrella. Well, if you've only got no change in one hole, you either see that or you see that. And if you can't, it, the camera can't see that. So the idea behind filters and behind multiple exposures, I do a lot of um, multiple exposures and bracketing when I'm shooting any kind of scene, uh, outdoors or even indoors for my commercial work, and then blend them together so that the ultimate image is what the eye can see. Yeah. And maybe, maybe a little more, but the idea is that we're able to capture that dynamic range and make it visible to somebody in a, on a single two-dimensional sheet of paper. Yeah, you're right. And that, yeah, that's the part of the whole idea originally behind HDR or high dynamic range photography is to to capture detail from the darkest shadows up to the the highlights. Whereas, like you were just saying, your your eye connected to your brain can very quickly make those changes in exposure and communicate them to your brain so you just feel like you're looking at one seamless image when you look around from shadows to highlights but cameras can't do that so you they only they it. only have one hole they got one hole they're doing they software. can they can change they can change the aperture just like your pupil but you, it's only one at a time yeah, yeah. now the, the the cool part is a lot of the new the newer technology and i'm i'm seeing this very much um in the the lumix cameras that I've, i'm moving to the micro four thirds away from the bigger cameras so that a camera is with me all the time and one of the things that I noticed in the last iteration, the GX7 that I've been playing a lot with, is it has another full stop of dynamic range. Mm. And where I used to have problems uh, when I was photographing with um, the GH2 doing my 
entertainment photography at the club, it didn't have quite the dynamic range. And I had to, for every single shot that I made, I had to do multiple exposures. So you mm. think of, you know, the guitar player moving. Okay, you got to catch him right on that. Da, da, da. Da, da, da. Oh, wow. Okay. And the, uh, especially with the new LED lighting that most clubs are using now, because it's so sharp, it doesn't have as much, um, what's the word? It doesn't have a, as much color information in each light. So if they make a blue light, it's all blue. Yeah, right. It's not, it's not combinations that add up to blue, which it has more depth and stuff. It's blue. It's blue. Yeah. So and it's very bright. So the the transition from highlight to shadow was really big. Well, with the GX7 now, I've been having a great time going, "Oh, I can get away with a single capture." And so therefore I can go more for more of the expressions and more for that precise moment rather than the moment when I could capture all the information I needed to have. That, that's really that cool. Sense? It, it, I, that that's a perfect segue because I wanted to talk about the your gear choices. As I know from reading your your bio on your website, that you like you just said you transitioned from DSLRs into the smaller mirrorless Micro Four Thirds cameras now with the Panasonic and your Lumix Luminary on the on the Panas, on the Panasonic team. So with the Tell me about that transition. What was the what was the impetus that pushed you over? Aside from the dynamic range, but it, that pushed you over from the larger cameras over to the smaller, more nimble cameras. Size and weight okay. was number one. Um, I was when I was I've been doing a lot more traveling with my wife, and we were going overseas, and we've been doing travels, and she was always like. Are you bringing that big old, you know, 35 pound box of camera gear and playing with that? And and she was like, I really don't like it when you have that. So I kept looking for a smaller vehicle to be able to capture some images that were usable. The problem was, I, I mean, I tried several different uh, point and shoots, even spending up to a grand on one that had, you know, you know, all different sorts of settings and I, I could control the camera. But as soon as I tried to push the files when I was working with them, they would just fall apart. As soon as I tried to make them bigger and do anything to them, they were they were art before you started because they would just go, <laughs> you know, all the, all the pixels would just <laughs> built in. Yeah, they they would just explode when you tried to do anything with them. And I was just about to give up, and the Micro Four Thirds came out. I I got the GH two from Lumix uh, Panasonic, and I took that with me to France. I had it on my sh and the other part was the the weight of it, the the bigger cameras. Let's say a seventy-two hundred lens on a DSLR. You put that, throw that on a scale. It's over five pounds. Yeah. Carry that with you all the time. You start, you know, getting some chiropractic problems. Mm -hmm. um, the other cameras now are about under under two pounds. Mm -hmm. So I've had them with me. I never leave them in the room anymore. I, my camera's with me almost constantly, and I was able to push those files even the, even from the GH two. And again, the the uh, dynamic range and the quality has jumped immensely to the GH3 and then the GX7. So with, so, with, the, with the GX7, <clears throat> you know, this is I, I really, I'm really interested in hearing this because you know with the, with the small mirrorless sensor, even with the you know all the math that Panasonic puts into the processing and all that, as a fine art photographer. You still find that even coming off of that small 16 megapixel sensor, you're able to blow these images up to fine art wall size, or do you hit wall? Absolutely, I can push. I can push them anywhere I want. I've been really, really, really pleased. That was the other thing. The the with the GH2, they hadn't come up with the um, 
the the better glass yet. They hadn't come up with the pro glass. They they've only really just started to attack the or make gear for professional photographers or you know way advanced and, and amateur and professional photographers. Sure. And the as soon as the pro glass started showing up, that's when I started using and I got the GH3. I started using the stuff for my pro work. Um, I'm catching, I'm doing my real estate work with it now, I'm doing my portraits with it now. It's, uh, there's, pro it's pro I'm probably doing 85% of my work with the, uh, of my commercial work with the uh, smaller format cameras now. And which, which one do you, which one do, of that percentage, is it mostly in the GH3 or in the, the GX7? <clears throat> um, for the commercial, it's both. I they both have slightly different features, and I use them. I use them both interchangeably. Yeah. But when I'm tra when I'm on the road, and the camera that's living like in my on my side, it, it just is with me all the time now. Is the GX7? It's got. A, I, and it was weird because I didn't really think I was going to like it when I first got it, yeah. and then as being the the uh, luminary, I was given one before they came out, and they said, okay you're you're going to take a three-day trip and your job is to go out and make nice pictures with this i'm like i don't know this camera i'm not a tech guy i'm i'm the last i'm the you know as much as i know about computers and photoshop and stuff i am not a tech person at all right so we uh, met in chicago and the, we all fanned out across the country and started making images within a day and a half of using this camera i was like oh my god this is very very cool <laughs> you fell in love I with just, it huh? i I did. And the really cool part is, you know, other than just being smaller, the smaller profile, if you try and do street photography and people photographs, um, when I would pull up, you know, my 70 to 200 on the DSLR and go, hi, man, make your photograph. People would go, no, no, don't exactly. take my, oh, you. Exactly. I pull up this. Now, I, I think I've had one person say, no, no, I don't want you to take my photograph since I moved to the smaller one. You know, and it's it's uh, it's a it's a pretty cool tool. The bigger the bigger cameras are definitely intimidating for people, and they they mark you as a photographer. The smaller cameras are oh, you're just another person, tourist, whatever. You know? well, that, well, that was cool too. When I was in some places where um, they actually asked photographers not to take photographs, I'm still taking photographs, and 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 I said, well, is this okay? Oh yeah, yeah, you're okay. They were you shooting with a big DSLR. I had my little micro four thirds and I was able to, you know, fire away and they didn't feel that it was a, a pro camera. I'm sure that'll change as they realize that we can make some nice images with them now. I don't know. I mean, they tend to realize things relatively slowly. I mean, we just got the ability to use our phones on planes just recently. So, <laughs> yes, but don't ever, ever let them have them on in flight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most people don't know how to use their indoor voice, and there will be blood in the skies. It's too late. That, that cat's out of the bag, my friend. Sorry. <laughs> no. No. But yeah, you can. Oh, you can use data. You can't make. You can't. You make can't. Phone calls? Can't talk on the phone yet. Oh. It's up to the individual air air airlines, and I'm lobbying hard to make sure it never happens because <laughs> even just you know waiting for takeoff and you know and and then before they tell you to shut them down, I've had. People, you know, like get the whole first class compartment to go to jump somebody because oh, this lady, you know, I know indoor voices, boys and girls, if you have to use it, indoor voice. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I had an experience with that on my last trip too. with actually it was at the gate, not to digress too much, but it was at the gate waiting. And there's this I, what I can only imagine is some executive type dude suit, you know, was was 
on a conference call with his team and the entire gate of course had to hear every word of him berating his team and you know i can only imagine that he knew that everyone was listening to him but he won for about an hour no, <laughs> no there's just there's just no awareness yeah. anyway we digress anyway, digressing so let's let's close this off um the last thing is output so you said this that your your lumix cameras micro four thirds generate enough data for you to be able to blow them up to whatever size you need as a fine art photographer what are you printing on are you doing are you doing metal prints? Are you doing, uh, you know, yes. acrylic prints? What, what's the, what's no. your, your, your medium of choice? Um, I do, um, for certain images, metal just, just sings. Mm -hmm. And certain yeah. other images, you put it on metal and you go, what was I thinking? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, and it's the same with, with all the media. Different images deserve a different treatment. So I Which will print. Which look better uh, on metal? Is it landscapes? Uh, no, it has to do with the tones that are in the image. If you have a lot of bright highlights and things, they just blow out to no detail. Oh. So you need images that are rich in color that have a lot of um, texture in them that seem to work really well. Continuous um, tone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't want to. You don't want to have things that have a lot of you know highlights in open sky or you know white clouds. Yeah. I wouldn't be printing those too much unless you've, you know, really got the detail in there perfectly yeah. and they can, they can sing, but again, you have to really prep specifically for each, each medium. Sure. Um, I print a lot of canvas and um, I've just been working um, off and on with some, uh, some uh, Hannah Muley paper that is just really stunning. Uh, it's just, it just adds, adds so much depth and dimension on its own. Yeah. And then you can like, you know, Deckle the edges of the paper as a thing, and by deckle I mean tear the edges of the paper so you have you know the fine art presentation, and you mount that, you know, up off the up up off the background, and then it has a little drop shadow inside all by itself, and you I mean you can build some really nice looking stuff. That's cool. Are you doing that yourself, like doing the deckling and all that, or do you have a lab that does it? Some uh, depends. Mm -hmm. It's I I have deckled. I have I bought a uh, a deckling edger. Mm -hmm. There's a a big plastic. A sheet that has a couple of different edges on it and you put it on the edge and you have to pull it just right though and once you've once you've pulled it it's like oh i tore that wrong let's print that one over again right right and okay then as far as labs go who do, who do you what's your lab of choice um i do a lot of my printing in-house um aci is a good one that helps helps me out they do a nice do a really nice job um and then i have a local um printer i I try and spend money in my my neighborhood if I can, um, and we do have a good Giclee printer here in Sedona, uh, Sedona Giclee, yeah. and that's that, that's been working working well because you know I don't know if you follow, but if you spend money in your own neighborhood, it, it puts a lot more tax base back in your neighborhood because yeah, yeah. the people you spend it with spend it back with you or spend it in your neighborhood, and it kind of keeps the economy going in there. And your thing, I, I, I try not, unless I have to have a certain type of thing, I try not to go to, you know, the big boys if I can help it. Yeah. So, so Bob, let's close this off. I know uh, one other project that I wanted <clears> to touch on that you're working on is this thing you, you call the Successful Photographer at Successful-Photographer.com. What's, what's that about? Correct. Um, that's my photo That's my website for photographers. It's uh, it's uh, based on a you know it's got a blog and uh, a lot of information for helping photographers do different things. Um, I tell stories about how my images are made, um, about marketing, 
about sales. Um, that's one of the things that we tend to forget. Um, I was very lucky that I was a very good marketer having come out of radio and managing restaurants before I started my photography career because I knew how to get my name out there. I was a much better marketer than I was a photographer when I started out. <laughs> Had it been the other way around, I may not still be a photographer today. Right. Right. And I, I think it's really important that photographers know business and learn business and getting their name out there. If yeah. You, yeah. you can be the most fabulous photographer in the world. If nobody knows about it, you're not selling anything. Yeah. The tree so falls in the forest, right? Huh? If a tree falls in the forest, huh? Huh? <laughs> I love it. I love it. You and me have actually, the same sense of humor. I love it. Actually, actually, I was in a forest and the tree, I was there and the tree did make a noise. So I'm assuming that. It, so you're the one who heard it. Okay. I, I heard that one anyway. And it was actually scary because it wasn't that far away. Um, but we digress. Yes. Uh, oh, su successful photographer. Yes. So I, I work with photographers. Uh, I'm writing a book right now on, on uh, marketing for photographers. That's uh, pretty easy, simple stuff to do. Um, I'm a big fan of let's not spend a bunch of money, but let's get your name out there. How can we do that? And there is a ton of ways to just be proactive and not, you know, it's spending money in a big magazine ad. Maybe not such a good idea unless you have like a budget of Budweiser behind you, right. you know, because people people can't get it. But there are ways to get your name in there on a regular basis, um, displays around town, uh, carrying your business card and just sharing your love, yeah. you know, on a regular basis. Oh, my, you know, wherever I go, I've that's the one of the most important things I carry with me next to my wallet is my business cards yeah. um, and designing those properly, you know, that kind of thing. So I also do a little bit of coaching for getting people either you know, up and running or to review what they've got going. Um, I can also help with, you know, the coaching as far as, you know, making imaging better, you know, wh where's your problems? You want to get into print competition, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I actually have pretty low rates um, and I can work out a lot of different ways to, you know, to make it work for everybody. That's cool. That's cool. Sounds like you got your hands full. You got a lot of stuff going on over there that keep you busy and unbored. Actually, what's really what's really strange is I'm semi-retired now. So it's, oh, so you're probably busier than ever, right? And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good. No. Um, yeah. Uh, the working with Panasonic and 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 being fortunate to be named one of the luminaries was was really exciting. And and that happened because I loved the GH2. I was just running around telling people, oh, my God, this camera is so cool. And uh, Skip Cohen from uh, from uh, Skip Cohen University said, man, you should talk to Panasonic. I'm like, no, no, I don't know. That's, you know, no, no, you should talk to Panasonic. No, 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 no. And finally, he says, I'm calling Panasonic for you <laughs> and I'm going to make you talk to somebody. So we sat down and um, I chatted with uh, Tom. And he liked the work enough, and eventually we, we came to a thing. But it, it really started because of my excitement about being able to have a camera with me all the time that didn't break my back. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I love, I love that approach uh, or Panasonic's approach to, to tapping um, the people to be luminaries instead of going the direction of convincing photographers that are using other brands to come over and luring them with gear and and stipends and all this, they go the opposite direction and say, let me look for people that already love this particular camera and work with them. So then they get people that are already passionate and they just put some horsepower behind them. So, Oh yeah, that's, I've, I'm very excited. I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to try a lot of different ones, but 
you know, when you've got something that works really well, I don't have to stretch too far out. Again, I'm not I'm not a big gear head. I'm not a tech head. I just I just love making great images. Love it. Well, Bob, let's let's wrap this up. Where can uh, folks go to connect with you, URLs and all that goodness? Okay, successful-photographer.com is the uh, main one for the photographer, you know, geared strictly to photographers. Then I have a commercial website, uh, bcphotography.com. That's B like Bob, C like Coates, photography.com. And then I have uh, one-bob.coates. Oh, I don't know what that one is. Hold on, let me get my card. We'll flash it on that. You can send it to me. We'll, we'll put it on the screen. <laughs> It's uh, it's a, a dot artist websites dot com. I'll yeah, I'll get okay. that to you. Yeah, get that to me. We'll um, put it. We'll put it right below you as you're talking. Here, so. Okay. Cool. so does that mean I have to go like this to read it? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, actually, I'll put it up here. So. <laughs> oh, okay, that's that's better. Cool. Uh, well, thank you, thank you for taking the time today. Um, this is the day before Thanksgiving. I'm sure you're busy, uh, with all kinds of craziness. So thanks for taking the time out to do this interview. I appreciate it. It was great. It was my pleasure and uh, enjoyed being here. All right. Virtually. You know. Virtually. <laughs> well, here. I enjoy being here. And it's good talking to you, too. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. All right, Frederick.